Welcome to this workshop. I am Judy. I'm a compulsive overeater from Roseville and your moderator for the session. Hi. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The format for this session is as follows. We'll have three speakers for 20 minutes each, followed by 15 minutes of questions and answers, and those are going to be in the ask it basket that we'll ask you to keep, you know, rotating around. Finished up with 15 minutes of open pitches. That's your turn. This session is being taped, so you will need to sign the tape release form if you're sharing, and I have it and a pen up here. The stairs are right here by the podium so that you can sign it and feel free to share, too. The topic for this session is Do You Believe in Magic? Yeah! Step 6, 7, 8, and 9. Our first speaker is Barbara from Fremont. Welcome, Barbara. My people. <laughs> my people and my Pepsi. What else do I need? <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Barbara. I'm a grateful, recovering, compulsive overeater. Hi, everybody. Um, I told somebody I was going to stand at the door and sing Do You Believe in Magic because uh, that was always one of my favorite songs growing up. And uh, I was hoping it would get me out of my head, too. But uh, And it really is magic. I a friend of mine just said to me, I've never seen you so nervous before you spoke before. And I started to think about that. And six, seven, eight, nine were not my favorite steps to do. Um, in fact, they were less favorite than four and five. Because four was a real unloading. You know, and I felt oh, just so wonderful. And I had this, um, this incredible, compassionate uh, sponsor who... Um, like didn't go running screaming into the night when I told her all my stuff, you know. Um, she was carefully picked. I kind of figured she might not. Um, but then I got to six and seven. And when I look back at it now with um, 2020 hindsight, I think the thing that, that was there then and that came up for me again today talking about it is that talking about character defects for me means talking about my shame. And that's never a fun thing for me to do. Um, and I had to I had to sit down and write some stuff down yesterday because I I couldn't I couldn't get my brain straight you know which again is, is unusual for me um, the thing about about talking about character defects is that um, in the house where I grew up I was what we called the hero child in an alcoholic family and it wasn't okay for me to have character defects. Uh, in fact, I ran really fast and really hard to do the best I could to make everybody, including God, because I thought I was that powerful, believe, and myself mostly, believe that I was really just like the best little girl there was. You know, and that went all the way through until I got to college and started, you know, really acting out on every addiction I had. Um, but it was very difficult. Not only was it not okay to have character defects for me, but I mean that was the way I was taking care of my mom and showing the world that she had done a good job as a single parent because that was my job in life was to take care of her so that she could take care of us. It's a little convoluted, but it, you know, it made sense anyhow. So then I thought, okay, well, so character defects, you'd want, who would want them, you know? What purpose do they serve? 
And the one that came up for me was procrastination. I would put stuff off. And I thought, well, why would I do that? I'm usually fairly successful in doing stuff, so what's the big deal? And as I was doing my writing, it occurred to me that um, if I didn't procrastinate, if I just went ahead and did something, I might do it wrong. I might not do it good enough. I might not do it fast enough. I might not do it the way you wanted me to do. And it's all about relationship rupture. You know, it's like you might not like me if I... So I would just sort of hold back and say, oh, well, you know, I didn't really try. I didn't, you know, I haven't done that. You know, that's not high on my list. Or some other little BS thing, you know. But really it was about fear. And it was about shame that maybe I just wasn't perfect. And then when I looked at this this step about um, entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, well, I didn't think so. I thought I would do it myself. Thank you very much. I didn't didn't need God, and I didn't, for the longest time, I didn't think I needed y'all either. You know, it took me five years from when I first came into, uh, into program to actually write down a food plan and start on my steps. Now, this is not the recommended way to do it, but I was going to do it myself. You know, it just wasn't, wasn't going to happen because it's just too scary to let people, you know, I let people into the parts of me that felt real socially acceptable and real likable, but there were these like deep little murky places that nobody was getting into. Mm-mm. So, um, and the other thing about six is when I think about it, if I had just come right in to a program and tried to jump right into dealing with character defects, it, it just wouldn't have happened. And the only way I could do it was the basis of steps one through five. You know, admitting I was powerless, which was really hard. I mean, I just wanted to come into program to, um, you know, to lose enough weight to be able to fit into a wedding dress that I had borrowed because I couldn't afford my own. Uh, and then step two bugged me because it was about being restored to sanity. And I didn't particularly think I was insane. But, you know, I came to believe that I really was. And then turning my will and my life over, that helped a lot. That meant that I wasn't alone. That right there was the admission that I couldn't do it myself. You know, and then once once I got through four and five and had, you know, blah, 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 God bless my sponsor, it took me a year and a half to finish four and five. I'm a little bit OCD, a little bit anal, but I needed to do it, you know, I needed to do it that thoroughly, just over and over. And she listened and she listened and she listened and it was wonderful. So that was helpful. Okay, step seven. Um, says, humbly asked him to remove all my shortcomings. Humility was not my strong suit. Not my strong suit. Um, and a lot of that was, you know how we say in program that we are uh, egomaniacs with low self-esteem? You know, that's where my lack of humility came from. You know, it's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, um, but underneath it all... I was pushing and running so fast to prove to you and to God and to me that I was fine because I was so afraid that all of us were going to find out that I really wasn't. And then people would go away, you know, and just never never come back. Um, and it really meant letting go of pride and shame for me. Big ones for me. Pride and shame, you know. Shame based on the fear that if I or if God or if any of you really knew who I was, that none of us would ever come back. You know, and that I would just be alone forever. You know, I had this, I had this daddy that left when I was four, and lived eight blocks away. And I saw him Christmas and Easter when my mother took us over there. You know, and so I think it got into my brain that you know that I was very forgettable. 
you know, and so I just tap danced as fast as I could to make sure that you all remembered me, you know. I could be funny, I could be outrageous, I could piss you off, but it didn't matter as long as you didn't forget me, you know, so. Um, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. To me, if, if somebody else can know all of who I am, then that's the only way that intimacy is possible. Somebody taught me once that if you say intimacy kind of funny, it comes out into me see. And it has to do with seeing all the way into me. Me having the courage to allow appropriate people at appropriate times. You know, not just everybody, because, you know, I either was all clamped down and pretended I was somebody, or I would walk up to somebody and say, Hi, I'm Barbara. I want to be your best friend. Here are all the things that are wrong with me. Now, do you still like me? <laughs> you know, which didn't work either. Um, so if I could know who I was, and if I could acknowledge the the ridiculous truth that of course God, if God is who I hope God is, of course God knows who I am, you know, created me, you know, still hangs around, must love me, you know. And the really ridiculous part that is really humbling and embarrassing is everybody who was close to me knew my character defects probably better than I did because they just could see, they could see me, you know, and God bless them, there must have been enough about me that was okay that they hung around. You know, and that was hard to get. You know, once I once I got the humility to go, oh my God, y'all knew. <laughs> I wasn't fooling anybody, you know. So that was pretty amazing. Um, the other thing about humbly letting God take care of my shortcomings meant that I had to develop some patience. Patience and humility, not my strong suit. I wanted the character defects that I identified to be taken away by me so I could take credit quickly you know so it was all about me you know and all about get it done fast and quick and dirty and let's just move on here little did I know we were moving on to saying I'm sorry which was my next <laughs> most unhappy thing but I had to borrow um, a big book from downstairs because I couldn't remember the exact words to the seven step prayer my creator I am now willing that you should have all of me good and bad that that the stuff that I've done that I've been ashamed about when I share it in the places that it's appropriate and the, with the people whom it's appropriate serves to reduce other people's shame too. And what a wonderful thing. You know, people have said to me, oh, well, you know, shoot, nobody else has problems like me. And I said, you know, it's that old comparing your insides to other people's outsides. And what reduces the shame is for us to sit down and really talk honestly with each other oh you did that too oh my god you know that's great I now I, you know and now I feel like okay I, I can take up some space and breathe some air here because I must be all right I pray that you would now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness not just so that I could be a perfect person not just so that you know I can uh, get a lot of, of kudos and credit for being wonderful but so that I'm more useful how wonderful, you know, to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here because I tell you there are times that I don't want to be honest. I don't want to have courage. I don't want to tell my truth if it's going to mean that I have to do more work. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding, your bidding, not what I think I want to do. You know, that was big stuff. That was big stuff. Still is big stuff. Okay, step eight made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 
where am I, step eight. So with step eight, I went back and reviewed all of step four, which didn't take me a year and a half, but it took me a while, and made my list of all the people that I thought I needed to make amends to. And so I went and I ran all these by my sponsor one at a time. And we got to, I, I remember this one, at, I mean, this has been years ago I did this, but I remember this one as an example. Um, my father's mother, my father was alcoholic and a big womanizer, and he was my grandmother's favorite. And so when we would go over there, you know, twice a year, and I didn't know anybody. He had nine brothers and sisters, and, you know, we didn't know anybody. And in front of everybody, my grandmother sat me and my little sister down and said, you know, it takes two to ruin a marriage. Just remember that, you know. And she's talking about my mom, you know. And I held a resentment toward her for years about that. And so I said to my sponsor, I said, you know, I have this resentment. I guess i got to go make amends to my grandmother. And my sponsor said, shoot, sounds like she needs to make amends to you. That was a revelation to me. And, and that brought up this, the next paradox. There's, you know, it's that, the same kind of paradox about um, being egomaniacs with low self-esteem. The, the paradox that comes up to me about this stuff, which I wrote down some, you know how when you get this absolute wonderful thing and you have to write it down because you can't remember it? Okay. The paradox was that on the one hand, I wanted everybody to know that I had no character defects, that I was actually very perfect, and that, you know, it was just, it was just fine. Everything was good. And on the other hand, I wanted to believe that I was responsible for everything. Because if I was responsible for everything, then I could fix it. You know, if it was just, if it was me that needed to say I'm sorry to my grandmother and that was the cause of what the rift was between us, I could go and tell her I'm sorry and then she would love me again and we'd have a relationship. And it was, it was hard to know that it wasn't all up to me. You know, that, that maybe there were things that I couldn't fix. And so, at first it's hard to know and then after a while it's like, shit, this is great. You know, <laughs> maybe I don't have to fix the whole world. Maybe I just can, can fix me. So that was pretty cool. So making the list made it real that there really were people I did need to make amends to. And making that list offered me an opportunity to make a commitment, a commitment to myself and to my life to, to clean things up, you know, so that I could be happy, joyous, and free. You know, that phrase in the big book always just haunted me. I was going to get a bumper sticker, but then I thought somebody would drive by me and see me being grouchy and go, oh yeah, happy, joyous, and free, you know. <laughs> but it's the thing that's always called to me. I mean, who wouldn't want to be happy, joyous, and free, you know? And for me to be happy and joyous, I, you know, I, I need to be free of feeling responsible for everybody and everything else in the world. So, um, okay. So that was that was making the list. It was sort of like the un-Santa, making the list and checking it twice, you know. And I knew who was naughty and nice. You know, it was me who was the naughty this time. So moving on to step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. It was pretty darn direct. You know, it was no um, pussyfoot, you know, bobbing and weaving, as my husband says. It was just, you know, right there, you know, I'm sorry. None of this, I'm sorry, but, you know, it was all, you did have something to do with this, too, which is what I always want to say, always, you know. Well, if you hadn't, then I wouldn't have, you know, and, you know, could we just share this responsibility here? 
it's not about sharing responsibilities. It's about me owning 100% of mine and 0% of yours. And I get to shut my mouth no matter how you respond. You know, I mean, there are people who were angry. There are people who didn't even want to talk to me about it. And there were people who cried and who were wonderful. And there was that, you know, that reestablishment of a relationship. And, I mean, that was just fabulous. So, you know, and it meant doing the eye contact. I mean, I always want to write a letter. You know, dear, I'm really sorry. And I must say that with my stepdaughter, while she was a teenager and using, that was the way that we actually made amends to each other. She'd get up in the morning and slip a note under my door, you know, apologizing for being such a little shit the night before, and then I'd write a note for her and put it on her bed for when she came home from school, you know, and then I'd be, like, shopping or something when she got home. And so that worked. So if that's what works, you know, if that's the level that the amends need to be made at, shoot, better to do that than to not do them at all. But um, the really humbling thing is for me to just really look into somebody's eyes and say, I made a big mistake, and I'm really sorry. And my living amends to you is to not do it again. So um, I had to watch the definition of wherever possible because my mind would run like that with that. You know, it was like not making my food plan definite. You know, because then I could kind of, you know, switch around it. Well, maybe it's not possible to do that one, you know. Maybe I could just, well, you know. And it just kept taking me to newer, uh, newer levels of honesty. Um, so that was pretty cool. So I can't believe I'm not even close to 20 minutes. Is that right? Oh, five more minutes. Okay. Um, and so when I was looking at this last night, I thought, okay, so this is true across the board for, for all addictions. I mean, that's what the big book is about. It's the, you know, it's the basis of, of all of our anonymous programs. So how did, how did six, seven, eight, nine contribute to my willingness and ability to, um, to eat less and to eat less compulsively and to eat um, less of, of my binge foods. And I think I overate to numb um, the shame and to numb the fear of what was going to happen if, you know, if I did something stupid because sugar would just yank me around. My emotions were up and down and all over the place around sugar. And when I was afraid, I used to just act like a big tank or a bulldozer. It was like, get out of my way. I'm running you over because I'm, what was underneath there was because I'm scared to death of you and I don't want to just, you know, talk to you one-to-one. I'm just going to get real big and just, you know, and you're going to get it. You're going to get it. And, um, and that didn't work real well. You know, it didn't get me. It got me the results I wanted in the short run because what I wanted was no confrontation which was kind of weird because it looked like that's all I wanted was confrontation. It was like, you know, bam, you, right, you know, let's, let's get here. But the truth was I didn't want any confrontation. You know, I just wanted to hide and run and, and just sit and suck my thumb and rock and do the old Rodney King, you know, can't we all be friends? You know, when, he, when that man said that, you know, I just, that resonated with me. Just can't we just all be friends? Um, and it also allowed me my overeating allowed me to stay confused now you have to understand I'm an educated bright woman and I stayed confused a lot confused about how come this was happening and 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 why and 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 where and and you know after all I did for you how come you're mad at me and blah 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 
And it was only after I stopped eating sugar that I could get clear enough, that my brain could get healthy enough, that I could actually see the truth about what it was that came from me that was a problem. And that it was okay that there was stuff that came from me that was a problem, that I didn't have to be perfect. And that it was okay to acknowledge that and to know that God knew all along and God still loved me. And the people in the rooms knew all along. And, and they loved me at different, you know, at different levels and different ways. But, you know, just accepting was good enough for me at that point because I couldn't, I couldn't even quite accept that, you know, that I was as foibled. Is that a verb? I was as foibled as they come, you know. Yeah, I like that one. So um, I'm very grateful to be here. I'm very grateful that you all are here. And I just hated that this was the topic that I got, but now I see why it was. Thank you. Just a couple of announcements. They've asked me to tell you that there are a few uh, breakfast and dinner tickets ready, and you can check on those at the registration table. So if you're looking at going to one of those events. And also we want to say thank you to our timer, Patsy, for doing her service today. <laughs> and now our second speaker, Violet from Culver City. Hi, Violet. Hi, I'm Violet, compulsive reader. Hi, Violet. Hi. Um, okay. A lot of people came in this program to lose weight, and that's not the reason I came into the program. And as a result, I see some things a little differently than other people. I came in because I was suicidal, and I had dated a guy that was an AA, and I went to AA meetings on a regular basis, and I could see how the 12 steps changed people's lives completely around. And so when I came in here, my goal was not to get my weight off and keep it off, which is one of our promises. My goal was to get sane and to keep sane and not kill anybody, including myself, because I was really angry when I came in. And and I knew I had to get abstinent. I needed, and I, and you know, and I resonate with people who say, I have to do it my way. I am been a single mother forever, and if I want something done, I usually have to do it myself. And I'm really strong-willed. I think everybody in this program is strong-willed. And if, if, it, if this problem could be solved by your strong will, we would have done it. If we could have done it ourselves, it would have been done. So I came in, and I had to do something different. So I started, you know, three large meals a day. And then after about three months, I was thought, you know what, if I'm going to do this and keep this abstinence, I knew I had to get a sponsor and tried to find my own sponsor, and it didn't work. And so I prayed to God to help me find a sponsor, and I found the sponsor he wanted me to do, and we were started working the steps. And when I worked the steps, I mean, I had already worked steps one and two before I came in here because I knew I was insane. Normal people don't think about suicide on a daily basis. So I had... Okay. I'm sorry. If anyone parked at the smart and final parking lot, they're towing cars right now. Sorry to interrupt, Violet. Back to you. Okay. Cross the street. Okay. That's okay. 
Okay. Um, so I started working this. I knew I had to get sponsored, and I started working the steps, and that's when my life really started changing. And the fourth step was really good because that's where you write down everything everybody did to you. It's <laughs> just like, because we've been saving those for years. <laughs> and um, and then we got to the next step, which was writing it, you know, giving it away. It took two sessions with my sponsor. Then we had to, I, we, I had to be entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And I want to say that my best thinking and my this is not really new but I need to reiterate it for myself my best thinking and my best violence will got me up to 224 pounds and suicidal so it was pretty easy at one point to realize that God's will couldn't possibly be that bad and <laughs> and so and my defects of character weren't really pleasing to me in there's things I still do that just make me cringe when I realize I'm still practicing some of these some defects of character. Recovery to me means, and I recovery to me means that I don't stop doing my defects of character. Recovery to me means I recognize when I'm doing them, and I know by all my years in program and working the steps that there are other solutions. Now, i got to tell you, once in a while, I still don't want to do it. Once in a while, I want to practice that character defect just a little longer, but it is a conscious decision. It is not unconscious. And most of the time, I think, do I really want to practice this character defect anymore? Once I realize to do it, do I, is this where I really want to go? Is this the road I really want to go down? And most of the time, the answer is no. That's not what I want to do. And so... There are times just that alone is enough to make the shift in how I behave. And there are other times that I do the seven-step prayer. I do the seven-step prayer every day. And, and I sometimes do it during the day when I need it. So I, the sixth step was actually fairly easy. And it's really one of the bigger steps. If you look in the book, it's not as far as written words go, one of the big steps, but it is a big step because that's where we start actually doing, making more changes. Because in four, in five, I just, everybody, everybody else did to me. And when you get to six, you start looking at your part. Even though it's part of the inventory to put down your part, but six is really, do I want to really be this way anymore? And, and I didn't really want to be that way. And in fact, one of the reasons I came in the program besides I started suicidal, is because my dad was real strict. And when he said jump, he said, is this high enough? And that's how I was raised. And I still work for a partner that is that way. So it's kind of known pain. And and I didn't want to be like that. And I could see being like that to my son. I used to get down my son's face. He was about four. And I used to scream at him. And I would go to work hoarse from screaming at him. And I didn't want to do this behavior anymore. I didn't want to be that kind of mother anymore. And the steps helped, was helped me change. So it's, some of these things, it's just look at it and think, do I, I, when I get to the step, do I want to be the way I was or that I am? Or do I want to be something different? Do I want to be this happy, joyous, and free that we all hear about? And that's, you know, it's one of the hooks of the program. Do I want to be sane? 
And when I get to the seventh step, my sponsor at that time, when she did the seventh step, she used to say, May I, Creator, I'm now willing to have all me, good and bad, remove from me every single defect of character. And then she would name her character defects, which stand in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. And I looked at that, I thought about that, and I thought, you know what? That doesn't work for me. I cannot add to this prayer. Because if I add to this prayer and tell God what defects I want him to remove, those are the defects that are driving me crazy. They're not necessarily the defects that are stopping me from being useful to him and others. And so I dropped I didn't put that in, and I still don't put it in, because I don't really know... Like I said, when I'm doing bad behavior, I recognize it as bad behavior and I stop it, or I have the option to stop it most of the time I do, but I don't really know if that's the character defect that's stopping me from being useful. It's and so then we go to um, eight, made a list of all persons we've harmed became willing to make amends to them all. That's a little bit harder, but by the time I actually got to that step, I was ready to do it because I really want, and oh, there's one other thing I wanted to tell you about the seventh step. Um, this guy dated an A. We went to these meetings, and at that time I was in program for a while with data on off, and we went to this one meeting, and they did the seventh step prayer, and I said to him, where is that prayer? And he said, it's in the book. And of course, I read the book once for the plot, so I went back, and I looked at the seventh step, and by God, he was right. You know, there it was. And I went, oh, this is really good. Um, and I knew that the seventh step prayer, the third step prayer, and the seventh step prayer, I tried to memorize it for quite a while, and I couldn't do it. And one day I just said, God, I really believe that if I could memorize these two prayers, it would help me work my program. And the next morning when I got up, I had both of those prayers. So the difference between my will, trying to memorize it, and asking for God's help and willing to do God's will and having it. So the list of people, fairly easy. I didn't put myself on my list. The sponsor had to tell me I had to put myself on my list. So the list of people, that was fairly easy because I had all these people. And and amends, I wasn't quite so sure about sometimes how to make amends, but I had the amends to make. At least I recognized them. And then it came to step nine. And they tell you, you know, when you work and you're doing the, the steps, you need to do them in order. I have to tell you, I did step nine out of order with my ex-husband. I was in program, and I'd been around to meetings, and I knew about making amends. And an incident happened where I have, we have one son, and between the three of us, every person had a part in what went wrong. And my ex-husband wanted my son to apologize because he's a littlest. <laughs> you know, he's a shortest. You can get him to do what you want him to do. You can force, you know, one way or another. And I got on the phone with my ex-husband. I talked about my son. And got on the phone with my ex-husband. And I told him, I said, you know what? I need to make amends to you. I said, you know, I, I had judged him not by what he did but what I wanted him to do. And that he was a good father. And, and acknowledge the fact that he was a good father. He was a much better father than his father. He wasn't the same father as my father, who said, jump and is this high enough, which is, you know, the standard I wanted him to meet. But it was, he was a good father. And I made my amends to him 
before I ever got to doing my inventory, before it just fit at that time. And I also told him that I didn't think that our son Mark should be the only one to make to admit that he is wrong, that we all had a part in it, and this was my part. And I told him my part and what was wrong. And that really changed my whole relationship with my ex-husband. Um, he didn't invite me to his wedding, his other wedding. <laughs> but he handled my second divorce. <laughs> and um, and we get together for family occasions, and we have I can deal with him on a short basis, you know, and we have a working relationship where for years before program and even into program, it wasn't until I made that amends. Once I made that amends, everything started clearing up in that relationship. And that is really, I think, you know, the fourth step is like my one sponsor said, is this is like a bucket of mud. And you just keep adding water and water and water to it. And it keeps getting, the mud gets lower and the water gets clearer. And that's what I think the amends do. Now, when I was ready to do my first really amends, I was really to step nine. So one more time, violent in charge. Mm -hmm. So I wrote to my teacher I had in high school. She was my algebra teacher, and she was also a college person that I counseled you to go to college. I had a B average. She didn't counsel me. And one time, somebody stole my notes, and that we were being tested on notes in that class because the guy was kind of trying to prepare us for college. And she told the the guy, the boy that took my notes when I found out he had taken my notes months later, that if I was a lady, I would accept his apology, and if he was a gentleman, he would apologize. And I never liked to be called a lady since that. But um, anyway, so I had to accept under peer pressure, I guess, his apology. So I had some resentments against this. So I wrote her a note. I live in a town less than a thousand. <clears throat> grew up in a town less than a thousand in Michigan. So I wrote her a note and said, well, you know, I forgive you for this, but I want you to know this is what I accomplished. And I mailed it off to her, never reading it to my sponsor because Violet, Violet's will, Violet's, Violet's direction. And so I was talking to my sister, and she says, you know, that teacher's been dead for several years. <laughs> and I figured God took care of her. You know, God took care of her. He took care of me, too. Cause, and I said, well, I never got the letter back. He says, well, her husband probably probably thought, what in the world is this happening? But after that, I took direct, more direction from my sponsor. <laughs> and I did the, you know, did more traditional amends. I wrote amends. The hardest amends I wrote was to myself. And I did keep that amends to myself. And every time I read it, I cry. Because, you know, I was the, I was the best mother I could be, and I was a real sick person, but it was the best I could be at that time. I was doing my best, and it was woefully inadequate, but my son knew I loved him, and my son still, I look at my son still, and he's real fear-based. He's, he, he's practic he has his practice in his disease with this program, with this, this disease, um, and there's nothing I can do except to live a better life and be a better mother now. And that's the living amends. You know, when I tell him something, he used to tell me, Mom, you were young so long ago, it isn't relevant anymore. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. And I try, as the hardest person to work the program with and, and not to have. One of the things about making amends is you really watch what you say after that because you don't want to do it again and have to make those amends. It really helps clear up your life. And... With my son, 
when I give him, I try to give him just little bits of advice, but I also back off when he is not willing to take it. Thank you. The other amends I'd like to talk about was with my parents. And I have heard, because, you know, I was, a, I was just a kid, but I, was, I had a lot of resentment against my parents because they did this and they did that. And this, they did, you know, it was always they, they, they. And so somebody said, why don't you write a parent, let her parents tell them what they did right? So I went in one ear, out the other. And I heard, it was a, I think I heard it three times before I finally took direction. So I wrote my parents a letter and wrote down all the things I could remember them doing right. My parents did a lot of things right. They did a few things wrong. And by writing this letter to my parents, it changed my relationship with my parents. My dad wrote back and made his amends to me. And he wrote, and you have to realize, I was young a long time ago. Child abuse wasn't heard of at that point, and you were, your children were punished severely. I mean, you didn't do what you want, you punished them. That was the way it was when I was young. And maybe that was all parents, but it was certainly fairly common. And, and my dad wrote back and made his amends, and he said, you know, I, I, I overcorrected you, and I realize now that I overcorrected you when you were growing up. Now, my mother didn't make amends. She never mentioned the letter at all. When my dad was dying and we were in the hospital, and I could say to him, you know, Dad, he was in a, a medically-induced coma, and I said to him, Dad, you're, always, you're a good dad, and you have always been a good dad, and I meant it. He wasn't a perfect dad. There's no such thing as perfect. God didn't create us perfect. We are never, ever, ever going to be perfect. We can be better. And my dad was a good dad, and he got to be a better dad as, as we grew up. And he let, learned to let loose a little bit more. My mom, years ago, a couple years ago, wrote me a letter and told me what a great daughter I was. Now she never had any trouble with me. I thought, boy, she's got a short memory. <laughs> but the other time, I've got to tell you, with, with my mom, when my son was getting married last June, and I said to her, I said, you know, there's some things I never told you that you, you know, we're talking about what parents know what they don't know. I said, well, there's some things I never told you. She says, yeah. She says, I know you didn't go to that hayride. <laughs> when you told us to go to hayride, and I was 14. And like I said, that's a hell of a long time, decades ago. But my mother holds on to these resentments. Um, and, you know, one thing, the, the guidance program, I remember when I was, I have a lot of resentments at work because they're, they're so, so easy to get. And I don't tell, I came home and I was talking on the phone. I was telling what this person did to me. And he says, is that, do you think that person's thinking about this right now? And I went, no. Do you think she's having a good time? Yeah. And she says, you hurt, I hurt her, hurt you the first time it happened. And every time you rehash it, you're letting her hurt you again. Only this time, you're doing it to yourself. And that's what the resentments do. That's what the resentments do. And that's why the, the, all these steps are important is because we can let go of all this old garbage that was holding us down. And I used to store my resentments in my heart. And, there, and I, when I start feeling suicidal, I'd pull out these resentments and they made me feel worse, so I'd make, do them again. You know, it's like I, I actually could spiral myself down. And I don't have to do that anymore because i got all these steps. And, and the seventh step, I use that almost all the time in my life. I train people, and right now I'm training two pretty untrainable people. 
and I'm not really the most patient person, but I'm working on it, and I have to pray before I deal with these people. I constantly have to pray to God to take away my defects of character, which stand in the way to my usefulness to you and my fellows. Because if I am practicing my character defects of having to be right, which I'm really big at, um, and I realize at work that going and when something happened, going to tell somebody else that happened to try to get them on my side is having to be right. And I told my sponsor, I've got to quit practicing this defect because it's not attractive to me anymore to do that. And I have to, when I'm training these people, I have to constantly remind myself of the seven-step prayer because that is what allows me to be a better person at work, a better trainer at work. And this one woman I training who I have to give very, very small claps to at one at a time and just really kind of like micromanage because she has trouble remembering, which I am there and I will be there even more in the future. And, and she says to me, you're so patient. And I don't say to her, no, I'm not. Because I acknowledge it, that that is God working through me, that she sees me as patient when I don't see myself as patient. And I want to thank you for listening. I hope the Ask It Basket is still going around. Where is it now? Okay, let's have it go one more pass, and then if somebody up front could bring it up so that it'll be ready when um, Selma is done. Our third speaker today is Selma from San Mateo. Hi, Selma. Hi, my name is Selma, and I've been recovering from compulsive overeating for 28 years. Hi. Um, I thought, you know, as I was listening to the different speakers today, how each person's um, experience is different. The first speaker talked about how six, seven, uh, eight, and nine were her least favorite steps, and um, I I begged for steps six and seven. Um, I I was asked to do a different topic, and I asked to switch to six and seven because they're my favorite steps. Um, and I, you know, it's obvious that each of our paths bring us to a different um, place of um, different needs and different experiences. So I think, you know, I'll start with a little bit of um, background qualifying. Um, I came to Overeaters Anonymous 28 years ago uh, at the age of 21. I was 180 pounds and very bulimic and very, very miserable and lonely. And um, I, at that time, I didn't. I thought I was the only bulimic in the world. There wasn't. I didn't know there was a word for it. I didn't know other people did it. And uh, it was a very shaming, very shaming disease. Um, I had a, a, a psychologist that I went to see one time. Um, during that period, I said um, I, I mustered all the nerve I had to tell him what I was doing. Um, desperate to be told I wasn't, you know. Um, you know, disgusting, and, and all he said to me was, you do what? And, um, I, you know, I died a thousand deaths, and I thought, okay, I am as bad as I think I am. Um, and the reason I, I'm telling a little bit of this story is because I was trying to remember, I was really giving this a lot of thought, like, why is step six um, about removing character defects so important to me? And what, what I remember is being a very lonely, unhappy child, and I have, I'm the oldest of four, and I have a brother and then a sister and a brother, and my, the third 
uh, sibling, my sister, is a very happy, happy-go-lucky um, part of the family. She's the one we always tease her and say, well, you're the happy one, you know. And, and, and I was mean to her growing up. And um, I remember <clears throat> I, I look back and I just I was so angry as a child that she got to be happy. And, and I was so unhappy on the inside. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I remember one day, I can still remember this, this I've made amends to her over and over and that I just, we were in the bedroom playing, I don't know, I was probably 10, she may have been 6, and I just looked at her and I just slapped her in the face so hard, and then when I realized what I did, I just sat down and cried. I felt so horrible, but I, I just couldn't stand to see her be so happy and me feel so unhappy inside. Um, when I was in junior high, um, I had a really bad experience in that I had a mean girl experience where a, a, a new girl moved into the neighborhood. She became the Pied Piper, and she spread a vicious rumor about me uh, to the whole junior high, and all of a sudden, every friend I ever grew up with um, abandoned me and ostracized me for the, you know, the eighth grade, and I had no friends. So. That there was proof that um, there was something really wrong with me, and I and I and I felt ashamed, and I I didn't know what it was. The rumor wasn't anything true, and um, and I didn't know why all my friends that I'd grown up with decided just to side with her and abandon me. So these were the things that just solidified over time that there was something really wrong with me, and that it wasn't that I did anything wrong. It was that I was wrong. It was you know I didn't do anything bad. I was bad. Um, and then, you know, I, I, people who know me know I grew up, uh, my father is from the Middle East, um, he's an, uh, a Muslim from Syria, uh, he, uh, he came here fresh off the boat, I was his first child, a daughter, and so, uh, you know, it, the message wasn't said to me, but it was an unspoken, understood message that I would be a dutiful daughter and stay at home and, you know, take care of the family, which was another insult to injury because as a teenager, I didn't get to do what, you know, my American teenage friends did. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me because I was born here and I was so confused. But really being raised biculturally. Um, so that, the reason I mention all that is because by the time I got into OA at 21, like I said, I was very bulimic, severely depressed, and just searching, searching, searching for something to make me happy. I started going to psychics, and the only question I wanted to ask them was, what, what, when am I ever going to be happy? When am I ever going to be happy? And all I ever wanted in my life was to be normal. And, and to me, normal meant you have your normal ups and downs, highs and lows, but you know how to cope. When life, when, you know, the, the hurricanes of life hit you, um, you don't feel like committing suicide. You, 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 you find out what you do in the situation. You do it logically. You take action. You have your good days, your bad days, but you look forward to, you know, living life and having fun. I, I, I never experienced that. I was really lonely and miserable all my life, and all I wanted was to be, quote, normal. Um, so as a result of coming into Overeaters Anonymous, I started learning little by little by little what normal was. And the way I was eating was not normal. Now, I don't think a whole lot of people eat normally, period. I mean, I think if you look around in our society today, I mean, you know, the size that 
is accepted as okay now was when I was growing up, I was the only, quote, fat girl in my high school. So then I was, you know, and I was 30 to 40 pounds overweight at that point. And that, and I had a lot of shame about that. Now society is accepting a whole different, um, you know, uh, definition of okay. And it's, a lot of times it's obese. Um, but I, I wanted to just, I lost my train of thought. Um, I came into OA and I started learning what normal was and what normal wasn't. And sometimes normal is healthy. I mean, what I mean by normal, I mean healthy as opposed to normal. Because really the norm is the, no, is the normal is what the norm is. The reason step six for me and step seven are my favorite steps is because what I realized was that in order to, quote, be happy, what I really need to do is get rid of all the things that stand in my way of of my connection to God. That's what will make. That's what makes me happy. Um, and it says in the in the OA 12 and 12. In step six, we become completely willing to let go of our defective behavior patterns and to let God change us as God will. That's what my problem was: was defective behavior patterns, my patterns of self-hate, self-criticism putting myself down, letting the negative thoughts ruminate, looking at the glass half full. These are my character defects um, and have been. And these are the ones I continually work on. And I have a sponsor who says to me and has been saying to me, you know, you can make a choice and choice to be happy and you don't have to be addicted to your misery. And, you know, I resented that so much. Being addicted to my misery, why would anybody want to hold on to their misery? But, you know, I learned that if that's what you've known all your life and that's your identity, to let that go, who would I really be? Who would I be if I pictured myself really happy, joyous, and free? You know, that would mean I would be getting out in life. I would be participating. I'd be putting myself out there. I'd be taking risks. Oh, my God, I think give me my misery and my comfort zone because that's what I know. Um, but deep down inside, I really, really have just envied people who could travel, who could go places, who could take risks and leave more than their five-mile radius of their home and their neighborhood they grew up in. So that is exactly what I've been able to do in these past few years. It's taken me all this time, and I think... That's the um, the message that it took me. Uh, let's see, it took me about four. I have 14 years of abstinence now. I have 28 years in the program. So it took me 14 years of two steps back, three steps forward, five steps back, six steps forward, to get my abstinence. I had to get my abstinence before I could do anything else. I was in my 30s before I had a, my first real relationship because I was so afraid of life. And um, I got married at the age of 43. Ten, ten years of practicing being in relationships and, and working on how, how to do that um, clean, sober, abstinent, showing up, being honest, and being vulnerable. So step six and seven have helped me so much because for me, the character defects I've been trying to deal with are, are, are mostly the inner ones. Self-hate, criticism of myself, Envy, feeling like everybody else has what I want, feeling fat all the time, even though I'm thin, still feeling fat, 
you know, feeling my body, getting on the scale, telling myself I need to lose weight. These are all punishing things. Comparing myself to others, um, feeling sorry for myself, focusing on the negative. Um, and I, what I finally realized about step six, and this is this jumps over to step eight and nine too, is would I rather be happy or right? Would I rather be happy or right? And, and I see a lot of heads nodding, and, I, and that's because I think it's such a freeing, freeing concept. Um, step seven talks about humility. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And when I went to read that step carefully, you know, in preparing for this, I, I was thinking that the step was about having my shortcomings removed. But really, if you read it, it's really about humility. And other people were sharing that as well. And the humility meaning, I am no worse, I am no better. And if I really go, if I really step into humility, then I have to stop beating myself up. I have to stop saying I'm less than. I have to stop saying you guys, you who I listen to, you meditate more, you sponsor better, you, you do what your sponsor says better than I do, you're more abstinent than I am, you follow your food plan better, you have more recovery. I mean, I, I just go, I've got, you know, like I said, 28 years and I'm still doing this to myself. I have to give myself permission to say I'm, where I am is fine and I don't, and to just stop I don't not even convince myself I'm okay. Just stop it. Stop it. You know, and I think that's what's come from, you know, the practice of meditation. What I do do is that, oh, there's that thought. Stop it. Not analyze it. Not counteract it. Not find, not even dispute the negative belief, but just don't go there. And that's, that's a tremendous relief as well. Um, so step six, you know, I have my... Um, became willing to, uh, no, hum, what is step six? Hum, <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> See, we all forget. We're entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. So I have to be willing to give up all those things I talked about because that means I'm going to be um, naked and, and, and who am I going to be without all those things I was growing up? Who am I going to be if I'm not lonely and sad and um, bulimic and isolated and depressed and you don't understand. That was one of my, you know, chronic lines. Hi, I'm Selma, and you don't understand. Um, you don't understand how bad it is for me, you know. And, you know, I finally had a friend in program say one time, okay, Selma, you know what? You are the worst. You want it? You got it. No one is worse than you. You're the absolute worst. No one's felt any more, more pain than you. No one's been in a worse place than you. And I said, no, 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 it's okay, okay. Because that terrified me. What if that meant I really was the worst? There was no hope. So I had to give up stuff like that. Um, step seven, humbly asked him to remove my shortcomings. So I'm really glad I reread that step because humbly, humble, humble, I, I'm, not, I'm not any worse than anyone else. And I need, I need to be willing to stop beating myself up. That's where the willingness comes from. The other thing that step six says is working step six is a lot like working the first three steps. I'm powerless to rid myself of this trait. I can't do it. God can, so I'll let him. And that's the beauty of step six and seven, that even though I want to give these defects up, I'm powerless to give them up. But like someone up here said, one of the speakers, all, what I can do is be conscious of when I'm engaging in them. And I really liked hearing that. I really liked hearing that. I, I, um, 
I can't help it some days that I wake up depressed. I can't help it that, that I feel uh, it's difficult for me to look at all the people that have been promoted above me at work and still not take it to heart that maybe there's something wrong with me. Why won't they promote me? Um, you know, my sponsor said, possibly because this isn't where God wants you and that's not the job God wants you in. But it, it's still, I have to show up every day and I have to make a decision to be cordial and kind to these people, befriend them, make friends with them, instead of saying, hi, you have my position, hi, you have my job, hi, I was supposed to get that, you don't understand, you know. Um, so I'm not better than them, and I'm not worse than them. And, um, and that these are the things that I have to work on with, with um, step eight and nine as well. Because I, you know, I want to, um, I was at a, a work picnic the other day and I just looked around and counted the number of people that got promotions in the interviews that I had interviewed for. And I, I just hated all of them. And then I realized that I didn't feel, that I didn't like that feeling of hate and anger and resentment. I didn't, it, it cut me off from the sunlight of the spirit. Um, you know, and, and I, you may have heard in these rooms, is where I heard it, is that, you know, how having a resentment is like, you know, taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. You know, I hold in that, that hurt, I hold in that resentment towards the system I work for, and it doesn't make any difference. They, I don't get promoted, they don't know I'm feeling this, but I'm the one that's dying inside. Which brings me back to, would I rather be happy or right? Which brings me back to, all I wanted all my life was to be happy which brings me back to step six, became willing to have this defect of character removed. Am I really willing to be happy? I have to ask myself that because if I'm really willing to be happy, as we all know, Abraham Lincoln said, people are as happy as they make up their minds to be. And um, that's a joke my husband and I have now because he'll come home from work and he'll say, how was your day? And I say, I was as happy as I made up my mind to be. <laughs> But it's really true. You know, I have a choice every moment, but it's not always easy. So that's, you know, where I ask God to help me. Help me, please give me the willingness, because those days that I feel that connection, that happy, joyous, and free, and it's really okay that you got the promotion, and isn't it great, and here, let me show you around, and let me introduce you to people, those are the days I feel, I actually feel joy inside. I mean, real joy. And it's not because I'm thin, and it's not because I, you know, um, found the man of my dreams. It's, it's not because I own my home. It's because I just let go of the things that were blocking my path to hearing God and feeling God. You know, what I understand about spirituality is that I'm not here on this earth to be taught lessons. I'm here on this earth to remember who I am and where I came from. And that's a, it's a really different way of looking at it, that who I am at my core and where I came from is just true love and pure love. But I forgot that, you know. I forgot that because at birth, that's the way I was born. That's the way I believe we were all born. And then we got raised in these families and in these environments where we, we bought into a lot of belief systems and we put on a lot of layers of protection and through layer after layer after layer, we forgot who we really are and where we came from. And my task now is to remember, you know, remember who I am and, and come back to knowing God. And every defect, every single character defect that stands in my way of 
my usefulness to God or even to feeling God, to knowing God. I, ha- I want to be willing to have that removed. And that's why step six and seven, you know, are, are, I just say it over and over, are my favorite steps because I feel like I found the answer, the key. But we, I can't, if I'm holding resentments, I can't be, I can't, you know, feel that either. I have to be willing to give those up. And what I do know about making amends is that the amends that I feel bad about and that I wince about when I, you know, that feeling like, oh, when I feel, when I think of that memory I have of um, how I may have hurt someone or, you know, I had, when I was really unhappy, I had had a very sharp tongue, um, you know, really sarcastic. And I think people that are stuck in sarcasm, they think they're joking. When they say, well, I was just joking, they really mean it because when you're when you're being sarcastic, you really are hurting people, but you're not aware. I wasn't aware that I was really intentionally trying to hurt them. I thought I was being funny, um, you know, and people would say to me, well, Selma, it's the way you say it, and I just, I never could understand that, and what I came to find out and what I, you know, another saying I really like is that hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. And I wouldn't have intentionally hurt anyone if I wasn't hurting. But like the time I slapped my sister across the face when we were little girls, I hated her because she was happy. You know, I hated her. And you know what? To this day, she's still really happy. And, um, and you know, I made amends to her for that several times. She said, oh, Selma, I don't even remember. Don't worry about it. You know, but... I still envy her. I still look at her, and I still see how she's able to make lemonade out of lemons. It's just her nature, you know, or she moves on, and she doesn't dwell, and she looks, well, this isn't, you know, this isn't, okay, this isn't fun, so I'll look for the next thing. So, anyway, um, I think I covered it all. I, I spent a lot of time on six and seven, but they all kind of, you know, blend into one, and I, I'm just really grateful to be here, and And thank you very much. Now we're going to take 15 minutes and we're going to rotate through your Ask It Basket questions. And um, first up, Barbara, if you would read it into the microphone so that it's on the tape. Okay, well, I got two because I have had more time to sit and go (laughs) than the other two women. Um, Which character defect makes you the most unhappy? Fear. Because fear just underlies everything for me. Um, Somebody wants, you know, I I love playing with words, and and fear could be an acronym for false evidence appearing real. You know, and I can make up that anything is true, you know, and then embellish it like crazy. And then another question was, what would fall under the category except when to do so would injure them or others? Like the example of unloading on an unsuspecting spouse that you've had an affair. Well, unloading on someone else's unsuspecting spouse that you've had an affair with their spouse would be not such a good thing either. Um, apologizing to someone for, um, for apologizing, apologizing to someone who will then hurt you. 
you know, I want to make amends for doing X, Y, and Z. And, you know, there are, there are scary people out there, you know. And sometimes we make the mistake of, of messing with scary people, you know. And, and so that, that could hurt me. And I could imagine making an amends to somebody. Uh, I'm really sorry I didn't tell you that your brother stole $10,000 from you. You know, making an amends that could send somebody else to jail. That's what I came up with while I was sitting there. <laughs> okay, Violet, compulsive reader. Uh, okay, the question is, been in program one year. I've been working on steps to the best of my ability, but I have not been able to find a sponsor. Do I qualify to sponsor someone else while I'm actively seeking a sponsor? Um, I'd like to answer one question that wasn't asked. And when I couldn't find my sponsor, what I did was I prayed to God to help me to find the sponsor I wanted, that he wanted me to have. And that's how I actually found my sponsor. My sponsor, my first sponsor, gave me the guidance of how to be a sponsor. So I had somebody, when I was just in and I didn't have a lot of experience, I had somebody with more experience teaching me how to sponsor someone. And I think that's part of the reason to have a sponsor. I was also told by my first sponsor that I couldn't sponsor anybody until I worked my fourth and fifth steps. And so if you don't have a sponsor, my, this is my opinion only, if you don't have a sponsor, I don't, you haven't said anything about working the fourth and fifth steps. And if you haven't worked those steps, I would suggest you find a sponsor, work those four, to those steps, and then you'll see how to sponsor and you'll have your inventory taken and at that point the way I have been trained is then you're available to sponsor others. Thank you. I can't believe I forgot this one, so this was a good one for me to get. How do you make amends to yourself? Um, you know, I, I, I put that down in my notes about um, making amends because the, the step book says it's absolutely crucial to our recovery that we put ourselves on the list. Um, when I look back in my life, I don't, I don't uh, all, the, all that I've been through and all that I've done, quote, to myself, it's hard for me to make amends because I really don't feel like I did anything wrong. I did the very best that I could. Um, the best way to stop to make amends to myself is to stop beating myself up, stop blaming myself, stop putting myself down. And like I was sharing earlier, um, to just stop it. Just stop it. Recognize when I'm doing it and stop it. I think the best way to do that is to picture... If someone came to you as battered and as bruised and as war-torn as we sometimes come to in this, you know, that brings us here into recovery, and if that person came to you and, and was, you know, just beating themselves with a club, wouldn't you take the club and say, sweetheart, that's enough. Don't, you don't need to beat yourself up anymore. And that's what we need to do for ourselves is, is just to say, you did the best you could. You're doing the best you could. Oh, look, you're doing it again. Let's stop. Let's change the channel and, and let's be kind and loving. Some people like to use affirmations and, and that sort of thing. And that, that all sounds good in theory to me, but that takes 
that that's another thing to do. Um, and um, I, the the thing I've done most for my the thing that I'm has worked the best for me is just like I said, recognize when I'm doing it, and make a commitment to myself that it's okay to not do that anymore. Because at some level, I think I feel like I deserve to be punished because that's the way I was brought up. And the um, the amends I make to myself now is to say it's okay, it's all right to not be perfect, and it's okay to stop beating yourself up. Thank you to all of our speakers. Thank you. Now we will have three-minute shares. Please limit your shares to the three minutes. And um, I think our lovely Patsy will probably show you when you have one minute left. And she's sitting right here in the pink. Okay. Um, be sure to um, stick to the topic of steps six, seven, eight, and nine. And the release form is right here, and there's a couple of pins, so sign in. The steps are here. Come on up. Hi, I'm Betsy, a grateful recovering compulsive reader. Hi, Betsy. Hi. Um, I want to first thank the speakers, and I came to this workshop because steps six and seven are my favorite steps, too. And I know, I think if you stick around long enough, they all become your favorite step at one time or another, or they all become life-changing at one time or another. Because I remember when I first came into program almost 15 years ago, and people talked about how the fourth and fifth step were life-changing for them. And I did them probably four or five times, and it didn't have the impact on me like step six and seven did. Um, now, right now in my life, I'm doing a, a fourth step that is probably more life-changing for me than all the others that I've done. And like I said, I've been around for a lot of years. Um, and step six and seven became really crucial for me after I'd been in program for about seven years. And I really got that, that message that my character defects were what was standing in the way of my happiness. I mean, that to me was just like a mind-blowing concept to really get that I could have, you know, some destiny over my happiness, you know, some control over my destiny of happiness. And it just was amazing to me what just writing about reams and reams of character defects, how they've affected me, how they've impacted me both negatively and positively, why they're there, and what I'd like my life to look like without them was just so such an amazing process that I, I went through with the sponsor that I, I, you know, as I said, it just changed my life at that time. And so I have so much gratitude for that. And then, um, you know, just to segue a little bit about, about other steps, about three years ago, I was taught a 10th step that was life-changing for me. So I just love this program so much, and I know that if I stick around longer, something else is going to change from another step, and I'm really grateful for all the recovery from, from all the steps. Thank you. Thank My name is Lonnie, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Hi everyone. 
Um, I've been a grateful member of this program for many years. And uh, I, I remember when I did a fourth step, and uh, I remember reading it separates the men, you know, the men from the boys, and then I ate again. And I thought, oh, my God, what is it? It's six and seven, whatever it is. You know, wherever it is, it's like I wasn't there. I didn't make it. I was a failure, you know. And, and uh, that just sought to reinforce who I felt I was. And I just took OA and I let OA do what was comfortable in my life. And I have stayed around in this program with relapsing and recovering, relapsing and recovering, relapsing and recovering, writing step four, sharing them, and what do you know, I haven't arrived. And I'm a much better person than I ever was. I don't sneak as much. I don't steal as much. I don't lie as much. Most times I'm abstinent. You know, um, I think my husband is happy that I'm happier than I'm in the program than if I wasn't. I think I'm just pitching to hear myself say that there's a place for me, there's a place for my process, and it doesn't have to look like anybody else's. And I know that I've been in that place when I've had perfect abstinence where I thought, this is it, you know, this is how you do it, this is what's right, this is the only way I can grow. And it just isn't true. Not in my experience, anyway. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'd like to share. I'm Judy, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And when I first came into program and was doing my fourth step back in 1980, I realized that one of the people I resented the most was my mother-in-law. And um, it wasn't just because she had been verbally abusive of my husband when he was growing up, but she was a very difficult person to be around. She'd been in a mental hospital as a young woman. And I was just not at the place of finding the compassion for her when she was passive-aggressive with us. And so, of course, she was on my step eight list. And in talking with my sponsor about making amends, I realized that going to her and telling her how I judged her, how I thought we were better than her, um, was not what she needed. Um, you know, she already had incredibly low self-esteem, and that would have just devastated her. So I decided then in, you know, in the early 80s to make loving amends, to start treating her and open my heart and ask God to open my heart to this, this fellow sick person just in a different way. But, you know, as we ask people to forgive us, to, to start treating her differently. And I also made a decision that I was not going to let my children know how I felt about her, not tell them her history with their father. And I remember in the mid-80s, my sponsor saying one time, yeah, I haven't heard about your mother-in-law in a while. You know, and it really had, that, that, that had patched over. And, and um, I didn't dread going to see her. And I didn't worry about what I was going to say or how I was going to act anymore. And that was the healing of this program. And that was about me changing and being a more loving and kind and less judgmental person. 
And um, two years ago this week, she died. And one of the things, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, that for 20 years I had had a relationship with her and that I treated her loving and kind. And that was not coming from me. It was coming from God. And that not one of my children, who were all at that point, you know, teenagers and adults, knew anything about her past. They just knew her as this sweet little gray-haired lady that they called Grandma. And it, it was just an incredible gift of this program and of doing the steps that we've just been talking about. Thank you. thinking of all these people listening to the CDs of this <laughs> workshop wondering what the hell's going on. It's so quiet there. Oh my God, I'm dead air time. Oh, anyhow, my name is Eda. I'm a compulsive overeater. A um, couple or so years ago, I was asked to uh, speak on SIP 6 and 7 at a marathon. And um, I absolutely didn't want to. Uh, I um, It was you know, it's just, well, anyhow, I didn't want it. So uh, so I decided to make an intellectual project out of it. And I started reading the literature and doing this and doing that. And one day I was driving along in my car, and I asked myself, oh, which of your character defect, defects uh, bothers you the most? And uh, what the sound that absolutely filled the car was hypocrisy. And I thought, oh my God, you know. And so, you know, admitting that uh, I behave sometimes in a hypocritical manner is just a devastating thing for me to admit. And it's not something you normally hear people admit from the podium. They, pr they prefer the term people-pleasing. And, um, okay. So yesterday I heard somebody say that, you know, fear was his worst character defect. And uh, I thought, well, that's not my worst character defect. Uh, hypocrisy is my worst character defect. And then it just hit me. What underlies my hypocrisy? And it is the fear that I am not good enough that I don't measure up or that I'm not going to be what you want me to be or need me to be. And the idea that, you know, that I am a fear-based person is just something I don't even like to think about. And the idea, you know, and to admit that maybe the big book is right 
when it says that, you know, fear underlies everything. Um, now I just, just just have to give it to Bill that he was right again. So um, that's my bit. By the way, step nine is my favorite step. That is what I recognize as being the difference between this program and any other weight loss program. And that's why I wrote my fourth step. That's why I gave it away so that I could make amends. And my consistent experience is that uh, step nine sets me freer than any other step besides giving up the food. Yeah. Thank you. I'm a compulsive reader. Hi, I'm very grateful for the speakers today, and I just thought I would open my mouth because that's part of my step six, seven, eight, and nine process is kind of, um, you know, as I heard someone else talking about, you know, getting out of kind of like the fear and misery, and you know, the way I think of it is like being stuck in myself and kind of the downward spiral, and um, really powerful just being able to, what would it be like to envision being happy? You know, what would it be like to envision not having these defects and, and really looking at them and, and seeing how did they serve me in the past? Oh, yeah, well, you know what? Gossiping really helped me when I didn't really know who I was or what I wanted, but I could find a friend in a room anywhere because I'd sit in the back and make fun of everyone else and someone else who was as, as insecure as I would, as I was, would sit there and do it with me, you know, and that's how I made friends. I remember coming into the rooms in OA at first and not knowing how to actually make friends with people because I knew I wasn't allowed to like make fun of everyone else in the room and they weren't making fun of me. So it was like, oh crap, like what, what am I going to talk about? Um, and so I think part of, you know, these four steps for me is kind of like growing up, you know, it's like um, figuring out who I am, what I like, what I don't like, realizing that I don't need to um, be whatever you want me to be. I need to figure out what I want to be. And then, you know, sort of the power of being able to actually take action and change that and just, like, go for it. You know, I, I made an amends. I'm doing my eighth and ninth step sort of simultaneously now and uh, made an amends, uh, just started making amends. I've been in program for four years and sort of like, oh, yeah, these, these little things that just, you know, I keep sort of going over and over in my head. I liked what I heard. It, like, just hurts you over and over even though, like, that first time, you know, whatever. Um, but... Um, you know, like, my mom got remarried when I was 13, and, of course, like, I hated the person that she was marrying, like, any 13-year-old whose mother is getting remarried probably would, and I, you know, told her I wasn't going to go to the wedding, and I was going to sit in the back of the church and wear black if, if she made me go, and, like, whatever, like, he's a nice person, thank you, with uh, defects just like everybody else, and uh, so, like, I just said to my mom, you know what, mom, I'm sorry that, like, I was totally bratty when you wanted to marry you know, Tom, when I was 13, and, you know, that was probably a really happy time for you, and, and my, you know, I probably kind of put a damper on that, and, you know, she just said, thank you, you know, that's, that's it, and I was like, okay, done, check, you know, and I'm like, okay, you know, what, like, what other amends can I make, like, I've been carrying that for a long time, so just really grateful for this program to kind of give me these tools to, like, grow up and change and just, like, let go of that stuff and move on to the next thing, so thanks.
It's now time to close the session. We've been talking about steps six, seven, eight, and nine. We believe in magic. Uh, let's thank our speakers again and everyone who shared. And all who have done service at this session. Please stand and join hands and we'll close the meeting with the 08 promise. I put my hand in yours. <laughs>